0: For thine is the kingdom and the
1: power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast. In and through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim.
0: And my name is Marshall.
1: Marshall, today is a good day. Today is a good day. Today we get to talk about our boy. Yeah, we do. Here's the thing. I, I say that a lot, don't I? There are lots of things. And they're all here. <laughs> when you when you speak publicly, mm-hmm. you start becoming hyper-aware of the things you say over and over again. Right. Mm, it's problematic. It is. Makes you question everything that you say. <laughs> Remember we were watching that video that one time, and the congregation had made Pastor Bingo?
0: Right. <laughs> and they had
1: taken all of the... <laughs> all of the little things, the quirks that their pastor had in his language Mm -hmm. as far as like, here's the thing kind of stuff and put them on bingo sheets. Mm -hmm. I I feel like I'm low-hanging fruit for that kind of thing.
0: So I I recognize this because I, I write out sermon manuscripts. And so I recognize this even in the way that I write out my thoughts. Yeah. And so many of my paragraphs like as i kind of transition from thought to thought start with the word but like it's a lot mhm but but <laughs> i
1: however it,
0: however in there you go okay there's a word um in trying to like edit them as i'm working through it i'm like well that's the best way to say it so i'm sort of stick with it i just ride with mm. it i uh yeah i mean i i've come Thankfully, in this position, I get I get a lot of experience in preaching uh, compared to a lot of guys in similar roles to me, which I'm grateful for. By the way, thanks, Tim. Um, but I, I uh, you know, I, I've begun to recognize that there are certain kind of patterns and and rhythms to what I do and mm-hmm. what I say, and I kind of hate it. But it's me. Yeah. It's me, though. It's just it is what it is. Right. Right. So.
1: So what I was saying is, today we're going to talk about Spurgeon.
0: We are. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles
1: Haddon Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. And he's he's a really, really big deal in our tribe. He is. I don't know if it's always been that way. That would be an interesting thing to know. I would love to talk to guys 70s. Yeah, 70s and 80s. And just ask the question: Do you know who Spurgeon it, is? <laughs> Sorry, not do you know who Spurgeon is? <laughs> just if this is an, an influx, uh, an increased right thing, did he? When when the whole uh, oh, what was that movement called when all the guys
0: started wearing? The I'll, young, restless, and reformed? no,
1: no, no, no. I was, I was about to start making fun of the thing in the mid two thousands when guys all wore plaid and had big beards. As you sit, as there with I a, sit <laughs> here with my plaid shirt and my big beard, <laughs> big, big beard is relative. By the way, I understand it's big. It's enough. modest in in many circles. It's,
0: it's a it's a good beard.
1: Uh, but I wonder if that was a bit of the rise of mm. of that, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was. That was a trend that kind of dug back into that, um, hmm. and now for the life of me, I can't think of what it was called.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think. Well, I'm, I don't want to give Hipster. away. Hipster. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If the I hipsters mean, brought him back, strong. I think. I think um, there is probably a sense in which Spurgeon's popularity has increased. I would say in the last twenty years uh, amongst our tribe mm-hmm. because of the kind of the young restless reform thing. I don't want to give away too much from one of our last episodes of the year, Mm -hmm. but I think because Spurgeon is a particular Baptist, I think his popularity amongst Baptistic circles has probably increased somewhat. But I I would like to think that, well, well, we even know, we we got a link a little while back to um, a page of a pastor who was calling out Calvinism as heresy yes right so someone someone was not entirely enthused with the way that you had described Calvinism even though you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a a hardcore five-pointer Calvinist by any stretch Um, but you were you were you smelled too much like it anyways Mm -hmm. and so they sent you this this link to this guy who called out Calvinism as damnable heresy and yet, on that same webpage, we found... Um, we, we found, There was a
1: link called Men Who Preach Truth.
0: Yeah. So because an art- few will. An, an article who was written by the same guy, and, and he included Spurgeon in his list of men, this very short list, actually, of men who speak truth. And we actually were joking around because I think there was multiple guys who... Edwards. The, Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards, Edwards Ed- was on there. He yeah. was like... Calvinist before it was cool, um, so anyways, it's just kind of funny that, uh, yeah. So I, I would think he, he's got he's got a wide uh, a wide range of, um, uh, fans. I, I fans, would say, say fans. I
1: would say Spurgeon has probably been popular amongst those who would read him, pastors sure. and sure. stuff like that. Sure, uh, in a way that might not have increased as much, mm. but we're we're talking like. I have a Spurgeon coffee mug. I I saw this awesome Spurgeon sticker that I thought would be great on the back of my phone mm-hmm. and I almost bought it, but I didn't. Not yet.
0: Tim, the king of almost buying things. <laughs>
1: you know what? <laughs> you I, I've talked about it just briefly here. I don't think people understand the depth of this depravity. But my love for guitar pedals. Yes. Westminster Effects makes a reverb pedal called the Spurgeon Hall mm-hmm. Reverb, and it has a picture of Spurgeon on the front of it. I don't need a reverb pedal. <laughs> I have those bases covered. <laughs> I want to buy it just to have it on my board. Right. I have a pedal on my board called the Timmy that I have because it sounds incredible, but mostly because it's got my name on it. I would love to have... Timmy and Spurgeon right beside each other. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? It would be the only time we would ever be lumped together. Right. And I would have to be the one to do it. (laughs) But it would still be a beautiful thing. You can can Uh. go... I had a school email me one time just in their blank, blanket emails about people who have graduated with MDivs. Would you like to pursue more education? Part of their enticement was if you would do your doctorate work with here, we have this set of three books and a Spurgeon bobblehead. <laughs> You're laughing, but tell me you don't want a Spurgeon. Oh bobblehead. no, I would take
0: it. I would take it in a heartbeat. That sounds amazing. I would buy it. I would too. Spurgeon bobblehead for my desk.
1: I. If anyone's listening and wants to gift <laughs>
0: if want, us, if you want to bless your pastors <laughs> with bobbleheads. <laughs> As ridiculous as it sounds, so just would to say, greatly to that. just to say, the folk
1: love <laughs> oh, for yeah. Spurgeon, it's there. Is surely it wasn't always like this?
0: Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. So I want to, I want to um, give give the folks at home uh, a few more of the contemporary things that are going on during the life and times of Spurgeon, just to give people a sense of the greater wider world. So, in 1835 to 1836, there's the Texas Revolution, which results in Texas independence from Mexico. The Alamo. Remember the Alamo. I've been there. That's cool. I've never been there. Yeah, I've walked around in it. It's a small place. Is it near San Antonio? It's in San Antonio. It's in San Antonio. Okay, cool. Uh, 1852, the first blimp, or at least the first successful one, is made. That's crazy. (laughs) 1852. Uh, 1869... The Transcontinental Railroad in the United States is completed, Atlantic to Pacific. That's pretty cool. Uh, 1876, the Battle of Little Bighorn Mm. results in the defeat of General Custer by the alliance of the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho tribes. Uh, 1885, Louis Pasteur creates the first successful rabies vaccine. I guess- That's handy. It was for a boy who'd been bit by a rabid dog, like- 14 times. I don't know if it was the same dog that bit him 14 times, or he'd been bitten by 14 different rabid dogs. Surely the same dog. I would I would think. Where do you go that there are
1: 14 <laughs> rabid dogs? Have you ever seen a rabid dog? No, I don't think I have. Let alone a pack of 14?
0: I mean, it was different times back then, though. Do
1: we have time for a really quick story? Sure. So, when I was working in Peru, I'm, I'm not going to use any names, but when I was working in Peru, all of us were struggling to learn Spanish. Mm. We lived and operated in an English world, and our bit of Spanish was just sort of running to the grocery store, talking to the cab driver kind of stuff. Some of us were better than others. Uh, I say us, some of them were better than the rest of us. (laughs) This one girl working really hard to do her thing, she was really good at it. Um, Had a roommate that she loved dearly. That roommate was out riding her bike, getting some exercise, got attacked by a street dog, got bit. The other girl comes home and the security guard at their apartment building stops her, quite concerned, Mm. and tells her, your friend has been riding, uh, is at the hospital, Mm -hmm. because she got attacked while she was on a bike by a dog. Mm -hmm. And so my friend's like, well, what happened? And she says, she was bit. The word for bit and the word for die are oh, very no. similar. Oh, no. Similar enough that this friend of mine just lost it. Ugh. And the security guard's like, I- I'm upset too, but uh, she'll be okay. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and after a few minutes of like losing her mind, yeah, realized the mistake that she had made. Oh. I was like, all right, I
0: think we're good. <laughs> I think we're gonna be good. <laughs> <laughs> that security guy's like, oh, Americans are so dramatic. <laughs> I know. I know.
1: All of that comes back from rabid dogs. Uh, that's funny. In case you're wondering how we got on that. there, we I go. had to remind myself that's where good. that came from.
0: That's good. I got two more. 1889 Vincent van Gogh paints Starry Night, oh. which is one of my favorite famous paintings. Yeah. Um, love Vincent van Gogh. Crazy story, actually. Served as a pastor for a while. Little known fact. Really? Yeah. Uh, I think Lutheran. I, I could be wrong. In any case, interesting, interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, 1890, just a couple years before um, Charles Spurgeon passes away, the cardboard box is invented. That's a good one. <laughs> you like that? I like
1: that. One. I I love these. Like sometimes it's hard to, it's hard to do with your head things like the cardboard box. And the Battle of Little Bighorn mm-hmm. being contemporaneous. Right. You know? <laughs> but they are. That's just, that's how it is. And at the same, technically, there could have been a blimp used at the Alamo.
0: There could have been. That would have been amazing. Well, no, the blimp's a little bit later, but... But, but just but just but, by a few years. I know. No, fair enough. Fair prototypes. Enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm just saying. That would have made the the Battle of the Alamo that much more interesting. If you had some, like, Texans... Chucking rocks. (laughs) Chucking rocks. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get to Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, who is colloquially known as the Prince of Preachers. Prince Spurgeon. Yeah. He wouldn't have liked that, but people call him that anyways.
1: Yeah. I I wonder if it'd be one of those things where he'd been like, no, or if he'd have been like,
0: Ah, you don't have to do
1: that. Because <laughs> he was a funny guy.
0: He was. He had a he had a sense of humor, for sure.
1: My my favorite story about his sense of humor, I heard uh, from... Ah, um, oh, I can't think of his name. The Scottish guy who's in Cincinnati. Sinclair Ferguson? Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg, who was speaking at Spurgeon College okay. in Kansas City. Cool. Uh, and he was talking about some interminglings that Spurgeon has with Dwight Moody, mm. who's a friend of his. Right. And Moody didn't like the fact that Spurgeon smoked cigars <laughs> and was often telling him to cut it out. At one point, he, he asks him, how, how do you justify smoking cigars in excess? Mm-hmm. And Spurgeon says, I don't smoke cigars in, in excess. And Moody says, what do you call excess then? Spurgeon says, two at a time. <laughs> and Moody, Moody just laughs at him and has one more little thing to say, like he just won't let it go. And he's a portly man. Spurgeon? Yeah. No, 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 Moody. Oh, Moody. I mean, they both he, were. <laughs> yeah, but even more so. Okay, sure. Spurgeon just reaches over and pokes Moody in his tummy. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't even say it. Just pokes him in the belly. He goes back to smoking his cigar. Leave me alone.
0: Fair enough. Hey, fair enough. Oh, man. All right. Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was born June 19th, 1834 in Kelvedon, which is in Essex, so the south of England, Uh, born into a bit of a family of pastors. Uh, Both his father and grandfather were nonconformist congregationalists, so not part of the official Church of England. Uh, but not Baptists either, which is mm-hmm. what Spurgeon will end up being. Um, he, he explains that some of his earliest memories come from looking at the pictures in these books that existed in his home, books like uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some pre- <laughs> thinking of Fox's Book of Martyrs, probably some pretty graphic photos for a young child to be looking at. Maybe but so, yeah. It was a different time then. We didn't, uh, <laughs> the kids weren't as shielded from the hardships of the world. In any case, um, he was educated, um, admittedly not particularly well. He didn't go off to receive a university degree when many of those his age were going off and getting their bachelors. Um, you know, his family was not poor, but not particularly well off either. And despite being churched, he was, he would say that he wasn't actually converted until the age of 15. And prior to that experience, he had been going through a prolonged season of wrestling with doubts and struggling with temptations. And then we get to Charles's conversion. Um, and it's it's an interesting story. Um, it, it has to do with a snowstorm. I actually have... Let me see if I can find it here. Oh no. Where is it? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Marshall's notes are failing him. Oh no. No, I had a nice little thing. Anyways.
1: That, that's why it's better to just know everything.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I will I will record it from from the the best of my my memory possible. Do it. Okay. So, essentially what happens is Charles Spurgeon is traveling from one village to another mm-hmm. in the wintertime, yep. and there is a nasty, nasty snowstorm. And so during the snowstorm, he's kind of diverted, and he ends up kind of taking shelter in a what was called at the time a primitive Methodist church. Mm-hmm. This is not the kind of church that Spurgeon grew up in. Right. It was not the kind of church that he would go on to preach in. This was very much, you know, very big on the kind of experiential thing. And, you know, he would even talk about, like, you know, the pastor's sermon was not particularly deep or profound, but there was something about it mm-hmm. that caught him. The text came from Isaiah forty five twenty two, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. And the pastor just kind of repeatedly just implored with the congregation to look to Christ, look to Christ, look Mm -hmm. to Christ, and it was in that process that um, Spurgeon would say he came to a saving faith
1: in Christ. In his autobiography, when he recounts it, by the way, Spurgeon's autobiography is great. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, a lot of diary entries and things like that that were compiled by his wife, Yes, he didn't set out to write it, Yeah, but in his autobiography, he writes about the man, And that moment saying, I was saved in that sermon by a man who was an Arminian. Right. As all are in the infancy of their faith and understanding.
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness. Because the
1: beauty of Spurgeon, Spurgeon is what we would call today a compatibilist. Right. The term didn't exist then. Right. It was only Calvinist or Arminian. Right. And so he would call himself a Calvinist. Yeah. I, I don't think he's taking like cheap shots, but maybe he is.
0: I think he is, but I don't know, but he's charitable. Uh, But it's
1: hilarious anyway. Yeah. yeah. Whether even, even as an Armenian, you got to think that's funny.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. So after this experience, you know, he, it's funny, he talks in his, in his, um, autobiography about, you know, he continued to struggle with doubts and with temptations but he felt this new sense of spiritual strength within the struggle have do you have to read that for school his autobiography his autobi- yeah
1: i had to read it for baptist history
0: so i haven't done baptist history yet okay so i i wouldn't be surprised i have Dalamore's book on spurgeon and mm-hmm. in, in my library it's, it's pretty good and i also have his spurgeon sermons i'm not flexing too hard but you know yeah, uh, I think you know, I told you to get those. Yeah, he probably did. Um, so he officially joins the congregational, Congregationalist Church uh, after this experience, but he never quite fit in. Mm-hmm. He didn't fit in because he had these Baptistic convictions. He had this conviction, as he looked at the Scriptures, that faith and repentance are necessary for baptism. And actually, he actually, in that church, refused communion. So he actually chose to pass up the Lord's Supper for several months until he corresponded with a nearby Baptist pastor, connected with him, Mm -hmm. and then was baptized. And and immediately he gets busy with doing ministry work. And keep in mind, he's like 15, 16 years old at this point. Like he's young. Right. And he's handing out tracts. He's visiting people, shut-ins. He's teaching Sunday school. And he's very very i mean think of the 15 and 16 year olds you know in your life Mm -hmm. imagine them doing this that would be sweet i mean that being said people didn't live as long and they probably grew up faster but nevertheless it's surprising um the next year he moves to the city of cambridge and serves at a school as both like a student teacher so he's still learning but he's also teaching at the same time it's kind of one of these dual things so his room and board is covered Um, And his tuition is covered because he's helping teach. Um, And then what ends up happening is he, he, he kind of joins this group of lay preachers. And they start preaching in these small scattered villages in the countryside around Cambridge. And he, again, he's 16 years of age here. And he's, I mean, he's preaching in people's kitchens. He's preaching in people's barns, like, He's just he's going to these kind of far flung communities that don't have established churches, and preaching there uh, because they have no other access to biblical teaching, and probably a lot of them are illiterate themselves, and so it's not like there's anyone even among them within that community who can do that kind of work, right? Which is pretty awesome. And then, as a teenager, again he's 16 years old, he becomes the pastor of the Baptist Church in Water Beach, and there's this little tiny church that had like. Maybe, like forty people coming out on a Sunday, kind of thing. And within a short time, the attendance had grown tenfold. so four from forty to four hundred to hear this sixteen, seventeen year old kid preach
1: h b. Charles the first is who he is. oh
0: my goodness. yeah, seriously. and And like they have to open the windows and doors because there's not nearly enough room in the building. And people are coming, walking. Or or riding in carts or whatever for miles around just to hear this teenage mm-hmm. guy preach. Uh who has no formal seminary education, I might add. Right? He's got like your basic, like he's got your basic education. That's that's where he's at. No, no Mdiv for this guy. No, no PhD in theology, nothing like that. And and so for the next few years he's preaching there and he's well loved by many, but he's often criticized by older pastors. One of them rips on him for not having a beard. <laughs> Which is ironic because Spurgeon ends up becoming known for his amazing beard later in life.
1: Yeah. And and the quote that everyone loves, right? When I when I was at the seminary bookstore at Southern this summer, they had this coffee mug. They're they're gonna be sold out by the time I get there in January. I missed my chance. <laughs> I should have gotten it. Picture of Spurgeon on one side and on the other side, a quote that said it, it basically, the further, the, the grower side, uh, the grow." I got to do this again in English. The broader <laughs> quote is from, I believe, lectures to my students. Right. Where he's talking about guys who are just sort of stuck in life and not really feeling any direction one way or the other, what mm-hmm. they should do. And his advice to them is grow a beard. Yeah, so and he defines it by saying, "Growing a beard is a habit most natural, scriptural, manly, and beneficial."
0: <laughs> Which I always, I always chuckle at because I wonder, because I know for a fact the seminary that I attend—it's actually the amalgamation of two seminaries. Mm-hmm. So it was like London Baptist and right. Central Baptist that came together. But I'm pretty sure both those schools. In the 60s and 70s, maybe even into the 80s, students were not allowed to have a beard. Oh, yeah. They had to be clean shaven. And there are some Baptist groups in the States that still... I remember w- watching this guy, a video online of this guy, a uh, keynote speaker at some big conference down south, who was just ranting about how God's not going to hear the prayers of a man with a beard. Like, These preachers think that God cares about what they have to say, like, while they got hair on their face. I don't know. It's weird. That's weird. It's weird. Because like David, like who wrote the Psalms definitely had a beard. Jesus almost definitely had a beard. Pretty much everyone who wrote the scriptures had a beard. Almost like I would go out on a limb and say, if there's any who didn't, I'd be Well, there's charge in sur- the
1: Old Testament about cutting about
0: cutting your beard and trimming it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't cut it all off. You can trim the edges right. of it. Make it look pretty.
1: Right. Which <laughs> assumes a beard. <laughs> that
0: you have a beard. On
1: all of God's people. The
0: beard is the default. <laughs> Default, right. Yeah, facial. Yeah,
1: yeah and, I, and I think people hear that and they would say they would ask questions of it, right? Is mm-hmm. it na- it is natural? It is natural. Scriptural? Potentially. Maybe that assumed Old Testament reference is sure, what he's sure, going with. Sure. Manly. We all know that to be true. That is true. Uh beneficial, you might beneficial. Mm. It's beneficial because it's natural, scriptural, and
0: manly. <laughs> And isn't it supposed to like keep the germs out or something? It's supposed to be like hygienic in a way. Or catch them all and hold them there. (laughs) I don't don't know.
1: know.
0: (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Anyways, uh yeah, that's one of that's one of Spurgeon's famous quotes there.
1: Yeah, and and Spurgeon's not like when it comes to giving advice, I I always tell people that come to me, like, listen, I'm not the kind of person that's just gonna throw advice at you. Mm. If you come to me as your pastor and you're like, hey pastor, I'm stuck on this thing, what do I do? I was like, if there's scriptural reason for me to say, you got to do this. Mm-hmm. I'll give you that. Other than that, I'm going to say, here are the, here are the boundaries, the scriptural boundaries. You need to make a choice. right? Spurgeon wasn't like that.
0: No. <laughs> Spurgeon, Spurgeon
1: to give you his opinion. Oh yeah. He'd be like, grow the beard, man. Yeah. You need a beard. Do it. Yeah. I'm, yeah. He's more confident than I am, I guess, in those things.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, he caught the attention of many, and he was asked to serve as the pastor of the New Park Street Chapel in London at the age of 19. This was a famous church. It was formerly pastored by Benjamin Keach, John Gill, and John Rippon, who are essentially like... That's like the particular Baptist Mount Rushmore of England. Yeah, John Gill. John Gill's big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great commentary writer. Um, it was the largest Baptist church in London at the time, In It had been kind of dwindling in attendance for several years. So I think there's a bit of motivation to bring this young guy in, kind of breathe some fresh life into things. Um, His sermons quickly become famous and begin to be publicized. And, uh, you know, a lot of people really loved his preaching style because he was very, very direct Really got to people's level. I mean, if you read if you read the sermons now, they're going to sound a little archaic, but that's just because he's speaking in the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. But for his time, he spoke at people's level. We're going to get into it later.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Spurgeon is not just what he said; it's how he said it.
0: That's also true, yeah. But some some people criticized him for being too direct, too plain in his speech, mm-hmm. right? He he would say things like, "There's enough polite preachers out there. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be one." Right and and like and again it probably rubs certain people the wrong way, but but that's who he was. By the age of twenty two, he was the most famous preacher of his time, pastoring the biggest church, potentially the biggest church in the world, definitely the biggest church in England. Mm-hmm. At twenty two, right? Yeah, um, they grew so substantially that they had to move locations in order to accommodate their numbers on Sundays. In um, this time, these early years of his pastorate, he ends up getting married to Susanna Thompson, um, and. Um, it would have a really interesting relationship with her. Um, again, as you mentioned, she would end up being the one kind of compiling his notes to help put it, together his autobiography. She struggled with her health her entire life right. as did Charles Spurgeon himself. Right. Yeah. Um, most Sundays she didn't make it to church because she was too ill to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that same year he was married in 1856, there was a tragedy on the 19th of October Um, He was preaching at a service and someone in the crowd yelled fire, either as a joke or a prank or who knows, there was no fire, but there was this panic stampede out of the building and several people actually died. Right. And that rocked him. That rocked him for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he would write about, I mean, Spurgeon's depression is something he spoke about at length. You know, and and I think this might have been one of those experiences that might have triggered some of that for him. He would, he would, he, you know, he confessed to like sometimes just like for no reason at all would just start crying.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth pitching a ten here for a bit. Sure,
0: <clears throat> it
1: would be easy to look at Spurgeon as the as a superhuman, right? In part because we've just the human heart longs for human heroes, sure, and we we want to take people like Spurgeon and make them something more than they are, because we need to believe that that exists. Sure. Right. Uh, And, and the interesting Spurgeon, people are doing this with Spurgeon. Like you've been laying out, even in his time, Spurgeon didn't see himself that way. No. For all the success he had, the the booming voice. And when, when we talk about a, a booming voice of a preacher who could just command an audience. There's an incredibly famous story of a janitor becoming saved at a, not, yeah. Spurgeon wasn't even preaching a sermon. He was doing a sound check. Yep. Literally walks into an empty room and does the equivalent of mic check check mic, but there's no microphone, so he's just sort of yelling to see what the acoustics of the room sound like. <laughs> How loud am I going to have to be tonight? And just quotes a bit of scripture. Mm-hmm. Guy in the back sweeping the floor just breaks out into tears and mm-hmm. becomes a follower of Christ. Yeah. Right? Just with, And you'd like to be like, oh, well, this is just sort of the thing of legends that develop. No, that's That's a a verified thing. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It would be easy to take all of these things and just say, like, let's just throw him up on his pedestal and leave him there. Mm -hmm. Spurgeon would have done that. The the greatest insight we have into Spurgeon's struggles, particularly with depression, is his autobiography. Mm -hmm. So when, when people... I don't want to talk about this too much right now. Sure, sure. Cause what I want I want to at some point in this talk about the dilemma of Spurgeon mm, mm-hmm. in, in kind of the way that you were saying about the beard thing. Sure. But I think there are others. Um one of the dilemmas that I think needs to be addressed is there are a lot of Christians who will tell you if you deal with things like depression, you struggle with faith. Right. And part of that is on you. And you just need to believe better. Mm. Or maybe you have sin in your life that you need to deal with. Mm-hmm. And if you were a better believer, you wouldn't struggle like that. Right. You're going to have to take that to Spurgeon because he struggled. Yeah. He battled. You have to take that to the prophet Jeremiah. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> right. And, and, so, and so in a, in the, in a great way... He wasn't this distant, aloof, ivory tower, big name with a big voice. Mm. He was very personable. He was very accessible mm-hmm. and, and wanted to be that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, a couple of times, even to the point of wondering if he should even continue, right. because things were getting too big. And he's just like, it's too big. It's too big for me. Maybe it's even distracting away from the word of God itself when you have this whole celebrity Sure, pastor thing, um, but that was that was a real thing to work on. So I would I would say to your to anyone listening who struggles with those kinds of things and thinks less of themselves. No, history's full mm-hmm. of great men and women of God mm-hmm. who struggled with those same things because yeah. surprise, they are also human.
0: Right. I think yeah. I think that the distinction that people need to get in their minds is like is things like like mental illness, for example, are not necessarily a result of your own personal sin. They are a result of sin in the broad sense Mm -hmm. because sin broke the natural order. And so mental illness, just like any illness, is a result of the brokenness of our world, but you don't gotta, like that's not necessarily your individual responsibility, yeah, right? And so it's something that we should not accept as being what God's original plan for humanity was. Like we don't, like it's not, it's not within his design. It's not, mm-hmm. the way, it's not the way we were originally made to be. However, it's not just a result of a lack of faith or, or whatever else, or weakness and temperament yeah. or whatever. And, and
1: there can be times when these things are a result of our sin. Sure. Oh, yeah. But if you're living in sin, then you, know, you kind of know that. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's... Yeah, so. if you're depressed because, you know, you cheated on your wife and she left you... Yeah, that's a different story. Right. Um, even then, though, we, we can be gracious and, and moving on, though. Um, so by 1861, um, the church moved into a new building, which is was then called and is still called the Metropolitan Tabernacle sat over 5000 people with standing room for over 1000 more. Uh, this is this is like a mega church. Right. Mm-hmm. Now for some of our American listeners, they're like, that's ah, it's medium church. But <laughs> in Canada there's no church that that's big there's no church that big that exists here today. Right. And I don't know if there's any churches that big in the UK anymore. I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't, don't think know. there's five thousand people at the Metropolitan Tabernacle anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh but nevertheless he preached there multiple times a week until his death, apart from his his much loved vacations to the south of France. Um his preaching so in his preaching style he was one of these guys, so he wrote full manuscript, but then only brought a little n- note card with some of his notes with right. him into the pulpit. So he'd write it all out, and then he'd kind of distill it into one little bit of notes, and then he would take that with him. Mm-hmm. That's what my preaching prof does and what right. he's encouraged me to do, and I'm not quite ready yet. But. Yeah, I, I
1: spoke with him, Dr. Rick Reed. Yep. Yep. At, uh, at
0: Heritage. which was part of the Metropolitan Bible Chapel, but in Ottawa, Ontario. Yeah. Previously, anyways.
1: Uh, I guess it was a month ago now okay. that I was there at Heritage, and I was talking to him about that. We were talking about preaching styles, and he was asking me about how I prepare and mm. what I take up on the stage with me and that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, he he was telling me that he he didn't compare it to Spurgeon, but the way he described it reminded me a lot of Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... Maybe we'll just trickle these out. I, I think this is another one of those conflict moments.
0: Okay. Yeah. Where,
1: where pastors love Spurgeon so much that a lot of times they don't realize that they don't love what Spurgeon's up to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's true.
1: But they claim him as their own. In the same way, modern Reformed guys love to claim C.S. Lewis, who was had nothing to do with Reformed theology. But they'd be like, well, maybe he was a little more than he realized he was and try to bring him into the camp kind of a thing. <laughs> but the, the current thing is if you're not doing expository preaching, mm-hmm. you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Right? Like you got to go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, and lay it out. Mm-hmm. That's predominantly how I preach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not the only way I preach. I don't think that a person preaching a narrative or a topic is doing it wrong Mm and get up and walk out. (laughs) Right, These guys that are all like, if you're not, if you're not expositing a a passage, you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. Ask them in the next breath, who's the greatest preacher? Oh, the Prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He would take a verse. Yeah. And then he'd run, he'd riff on it for an hour.
0: Yeah. That's what he did. Right. Yeah.
1: And that verse doesn't need to be in its context. for Spurgeon.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's true. He won't even he'll just be like this is the verse. He won't he won't even like for me when I bounce around, I at least try to give like a little bit of like this is this is what's going on yep. where this verse is. He doesn't even do that. He's just yep. like that's the verse, let's go. And it's just bunny trails that end up where he's going. He always f- goes to the cross always. Sure.
1: He never gets into heresy? No, no, or no, no, heterodoxy, no. No, no. Anything no, no, no. like that. He no, always he's solid. But he's not afraid to say, I read this thing in the Old Testament, and it reminded me of this modern-day situation that our church is in, and I'm going to speak to that. Right. Right? And just grab this and drag it over and plop it down and do an incredible sermon. And like by the end of it, you're just like mind-blown right. at what this guy was able to work up from this. But it's not
0: exposition. Not really, no, none at all. Yet. Expositional guys love them.
1: When I was in seminary, it was like the class wasn't preaching, it was expositional preaching. Yeah, mine
0: too. Yeah, mine too. Right? It's
1: in the title, we don't teach anything else. I know. One of the assignments, read Spurgeon. (laughs) And as you're reading it, you're like, all of your how to write a sermon books, Spurgeon would have failed. I know. Like he has one point out of the 12 points that I'm supposed to check on how I write my sermon (laughs) according to your book. But they love uh, him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel that that's you know, it's encouraging to be reminded of that because if I was being graded in my homiletics class on the sermon I preached last Sunday, I would have failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did not do it the way I was taught to do it, and I think it's okay sometimes. And in Burgess's yeah. case, he did it all the time, and people love him for it. So
1: the Bible doesn't, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't lay out how a sermon is supposed to be written. Right. No, you're right. Th- that's just to say, that the, the only reason I brought this up is those people who say, no, this is the way it has to be done,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Spurgeon was the best at it. <laughs> the two don't come together. It's so true. It's oil and water.
0: It's so true. It's so true. Um, one of the other things he did is he, he never gave altar calls. Mm-mm. Didn't do the altar call thing. And this was kind of at a, at the stage where altar calls kind of were beginning to grow in popularity. We're not quite at the Billy Graham level yet. Yeah, But what he would do is he would invite those who were interested in receiving Christ, were interested in, in in receiving the gospel, to meet him in his office on Monday morning. And almost every Monday morning, he would be meeting with people who had heard his sermon and who were there, mm-hmm. which, is, uh, which is kind of cool. Um in his time at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Spurgeon finds himself embroiled in controversy, right? Or controversial moves, huge con Yeah.
1: huge theological controversies of yeah. his age.
0: Some some of the, some of the the littler ones, the smaller ones before we get into some of the biggies. Um you know, he was he supported um Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission. Which was interdenominational in focus. And so some of his Baptist brethren kind of poo-pooed on that because they were partnering with people outside of the Baptist fold. Yep. Right? It was it was much more tribal at that time. The denominations were much more tribal.
1: Yeah, and and even in that, there's some Keswick influence in some of the inland mission stuff. Yes. Which would be considered a heterodoxy.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't be great. But nevertheless, Spurgeon gave him money, supported him. He was uh he was all for for the work. Um he went after the Church of England over the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. So the idea that born again through the process of baptism, through mm-hmm. the sacrament of baptism as the, the Church of England would call it. Um, which I mean that was a big deal. <laughs> Right. This is the established national church of England. And yes, like religious liberty has been around in England for a long time. But nevertheless, like, you know, you're gonna get some targets on your back if you go after the Church of England. Because going yeah. after the Church of Church of England is going after the monarchy.
1: Yeah, just to Beca- define it, baptismal regeneration mm. is you are saved because you got wet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You can believe all you want, but until you're baptized, yeah. it's not effective.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's the stamp.
0: That, yeah. But the, the biggest the biggest controversy that he got involved with was not with the Church of England, but actually primarily with other Baptists, right? In something that was called the downgrade controversy,
1: right? And there's there's a lot of culture that comes around this. Mm. We talked about the formation of the Baptists in England and about how when the Baptists first begin, there's a sort of blend of what we would call the general Baptist and the particular Baptists. Right. Some a lot of commingling. Sure. Those who are Reformed versus Arminian. Right. This starts to split. And as the split, as as time moves on, the split widens. Mm-hmm. It doesn't narrow. And it doesn't even run parallel. People don't just sort of like be like, Well, we found our lane, you found your lane, let's let's just each do the thing and no, it, it gets worse and worse. And so in Spurgeon's time, a lot of the Calvinistic camp, the particular Baptists, become very Calvinistic. Right. Hyper Calvinistic. Sure, sure. Right? And the general Baptists become General to the point of universalist.
0: Yeah, super liberal, right? super universalist. And
1: so, so in the time of Spurgeon, we see pastors saying things like, I refuse to preach the gospel publicly, lest it would fall on the ears of the reprobate. Mm. Because it's too beautiful a story for those ears that would never... God is going to save whom he is going to save, and he doesn't need me to preach the gospel to do it, and so I refuse to preach it publicly, mm. right? On the other end, it gets into sort of like, what are we here for, right? Like, all roads lead to the same place. Everyone, as long as you're you're moral and trying is, is in line with God, that's what universalism is. We're all going to be saved in the end, so these are this is the way the two camps have divided. and when when you have camps like this, and you have a celebrity mm. who is a Baptist, mm-hmm. both camps want him on their side, right? Because it brings validity to their argument. Mm-hmm. In a lot of these things, Spurgeon calls himself a Calvinist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as we discussed, if you go back to the uh, the podcast on Arminius. Right. I shared Spurgeon's view mm-hmm. from his autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what that was title is. Something like the other Reformed theology or something like that. <laughs> okay,
0: something like that, yeah. Something, something yeah. to poke the bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: so he's a bit of a centralist in this,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in that he is a Calvinist, yeah, but he's not a hyper-Calvinist. But he's not a hyper-Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And when those guys are saying, if you're you're either Calvinist or you're not, come join us, he's like, no.
0: Yeah, because you guys don't preach the gospel.
1: I'm not going there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and when the general Baptists look at him and they say, you're not joining their camp, we're the default camp then. Yeah. Right? Like, it, if if mm-hmm. you're not of them, then you're of us. And yeah. he's like, absolutely not. Yeah. Christ alone. Mm-hmm. And And... All else are lost. Yeah. Uh, so, so he he deals with a lot of tension, mm-hmm. and it's a stressful thing, and and again, a contributor to his depression that sure. he notes is that being in the middle on this, holding what I think is a very admirable and right position mm-hmm. to not be swayed, takes a huge toll on him emotionally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I mean, yeah. So he certainly distanced himself from the hyper Calvinists who, you know, refuse to support foreign missions and preach the gospel and that sort of thing however his church was part of the baptist union in england Mm -hmm. that was their denominational affiliation however in 1887 i believe he they disaffiliated from the baptist union they left the baptist union over the what came to be known as the downgrade controversy and and spurgeon himself kind of came up with the term downgrade mm-hmm. because what was happening is the influx of what we talked about last week, that liberal theology from Germany was coming into the Baptist union in England. Mm-hmm. So things like the, you know, the hypercritical interpretation of scripture and the disregard for the supernatural, the, the, you know, the downplaying of the atonement. What, what Spurgeon saw was that they were downgrading the value of the Bible and This was becoming common within the Baptist Union, becoming common within their seminaries. And so what Spurgeon, you know, Spurgeon writes this article because he, on top of preaching like multiple times a week, he also had like a weekly magazine that he published called The Sword and Trowel. And so I'll just have a very brief little thing that, that he writes in this article that kind of spearheads the division Uh, with the denomination they were part of he said believers in christ's atonement are now in declared union with those who make light of it believers in holy scripture are in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration those who hold evangelical doctrine are in open alliance with those who call the fall a fable who deny the personality of the Holy Ghost, who call justification by faith immoral, and hold that there is another probation after death. It is our solemn conviction that there should be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. And so he was pulling no punches there. And what Spurgeon is doing is essentially saying, we can't be in a denomination with those who don't believe the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And I'm not in the camp with the guys who are so Calvinistic, hyper-Calvinistic, that they won't even preach the gospel. I'm not doing that thing, but I'm not I'm not going to stay in this denomination of, of people who see the Bible as less than, who have downgraded what the Bible is to them.
1: I have friends who have made that exact same move within the last 12 months here in Canada yep. for the exact same reasons, mm-hmm. also from a Baptist denomination.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's By the way, it's happening a lot, actually.
1: Did you know that the Metropolitan Tabernacle still produces The Sword and the Trial?
0: That's amazing. I had no idea that was true. You can subscribe.
1: Wow. Can, with an e-subscription, if you like. Okay. Also, it turns out Founders has a podcast.
0: Called The Sword and Trial?
1: Yeah. I say, I say a little boo on that. Like, I mean, you can be a Spurgeon fan and all that kind of stuff, but that's <laughs> taken and it's still published. Let it go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, beyond that, I mean, so Spurgeon also got involved in other difficult subjects. Uh he openly opposed slavery, uh strongly opposed the owning of slaves. And for that, he actually lost support from the Southern Baptists mm-hmm. for a while. And so his, you know, the sermons that were published would actually be sold um and circulated. So it hurt his pocketbook to take that position. Um and he received threatening and insulting letters as a consequence for that position. Now, thankfully the Southern Baptist convention, of the United States is no longer pro-slavery. We're talking, this is a long time ago, pre, uh, you know, pre uh, civil war, but nevertheless, you know, he took that, he took that position and uh, you know, and, and was willing to kind of suffer the consequences for it. Right. Like he was not about, he was not about saying things that he did not believe were true for the sake of unity. Right. you know he was he was he was for unity insofar as it could be built around truth. and in fact it's interesting because there there are quotes of his where he talks about having a greater degree of fellowship with certain Presbyterians rather than certain Baptists mm-hmm. because he's like, okay, so we we're divided on you know church government and you know and baptism, but at least they open up the Bible and believe it right right like at least these these people from these other denominations actually believe God's word is God's word and I can find fellowship with that in spite of our differences but yeah. some people who who have the same you know the same word on their church sign are miles and miles away from right. where
1: Booth uh the founder of the Salvation Army yeah uh friends with Spurgeon yep um he Spurgeon and le- lectures letters to my students mm-hmm. lectures to my students I don't remember right now which one it is Uh, but he talks about learning, even, even though he has called out the church of England, he talks about learning from them when he's teaching people. You don't have to pray spontaneously all the time, right? Some, in fact, he likes to say things like sometimes I wish I hear people pray and I think I wish they would have given that a little more thought ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, so write a prayer. Yeah. What what harm are you gonna There's do? There's Nothing
0: wrong with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> God doesn't need you to stumble over your words in order for it to be heartfelt. <laughs> oh, and, but that. It. But that again, that's just kind of who he is, where he just sort of rides in that center, mm-hmm. where he says, "I'm not going to be owned by a tribe,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I'm gonna I'm gonna take all of these pieces, I'm gonna examine them individually, and I'm going to do in each instance." What I feel convicted to do, yeah, um, that resonates hard with me, yeah, yeah. And I, I feel like, I, this is. So here's the thing: sometimes you just want to take your heroes and you'll be like, "Man, we're in lockstep, right? <laughs> right?" Because that puts you at par at some degree with your heroes. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm that way. Mm-hmm. And so when guys get all tribe and they're like, oh, yeah, and I'm just like, nah, I, I can't go there. Mm-hmm. Uh sometimes you end up you end up standing there by yourself because yeah. you're not a part of either group. Mm-hmm. Spurgeon did it too. And uh so I always always got that to go back on. Right. But at the same time I wouldn't say that I'm always with Spurgeon.
0: No, no, so, yeah.
1: So it's not like it's not like the whole world would divide, and there would be Tim and Charles Spurgeon, right, and standing together. Nobody, to nobody else. We would both be standing <laughs> alone, looking at each other, like, "Hey." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but I think the idea of 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 standing firmly on on what is true, right, and and not getting caught in the politics, not getting caught in the prevailing winds of. Culture One way or another, mm-hmm. you know, finding fellowship where fellowship can be had and having, having the wherewithal to step away when it's time to step away. Mm-hmm. You know, there, are, I, I've talked to so many guys in Baptist churches that are part of a different group than us that, that are feeling that. And yep. they're like, we don't know what to do. And I'm like, I think you do know what to do. You're you just, just afraid to yeah. do it. And like and again, it's a big deal. And it's easy for me to say that on this side of the dividing line. Right. So like I don't wanna I don't wanna be overly critical or judgmental of those guys. It's a hard path to walk and there's a lot of factors at play.
1: Yeah, because there's also there's also the notion of being a part of reform.
0: Right. Yes. And kind of fighting from within. Right. And like and I I applaud that if you're if you're able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, you know, really resonate with, with Spurgeon as well. He died at 57. His health was not great. It never was great, um, but continued to decline. He was able to get away for, you know, pastoral furloughs or sabbaticals or whatever you want into France to kind of improve his health. Although he often continued working and writing commentaries and the, and the like while, while he was away. But eventually at at 57, he he passed away. And when he did, the outpouring of love and support at his funeral was, it was an event in the city of London. Um, There were thousands upon thousands of people who came out. There was a massive funeral procession. They had to bring out extra police officers just to kind of control traffic and everything as the procession went along. And, you know, he's, he's let, he's left a legacy, right? He's left a legacy of, of what, you know, dutiful Christian leadership is. Uh, he's left a legacy of of faithfulness in the midst of theological divisions. He's left a legacy of what it means to pour into others. You know, he, he may, he formed a pastoral college and devoted a ton of time into the next generation of leaders Um, some of whom, you know, even made it away across the Atlantic into Canada after learning underneath of him. Spurgeon was, you know, this fantastic example in many ways, not a perfect man by any stretch, but, but faithful and gifted and, um, and funny, (laughs) which I love. (laughs) I love, I love that in all of it, he had a sense of humor and didn't seem to take himself or others too seriously. And I think that's a, something that too many pastors fall into taking yeah. ourselves and others too, too seriously sometimes.
1: Yeah. And, and I would say also digging our heels in and, in, in camps where, where it's not necessary. Sure. Yeah. And, and this will be my, this will be my last. You think you love Spurgeon, but you would also <laughs> kick him out of your group. Uh, like you said, the Southern Baptists had a real problem with Spurgeon mm-hmm. that they are no longer pro-slavery. Uh, means that that's water under the bridge. Sure. Another thing that Spurgeon dealt with in his time were the teetotalers. Right. The teetotalers are are those people who are a relatively new group. At that point, yeah. By the way, as a surprise to, to many, uh, of people who are like, drunkenness means consumption of any amount of alcohol, period. hmm hmm Being from the Bible Belt, that's what it is there today. Mm. Teetotalers, right? To the point that we still have blue laws mm. in Arkansas, dry counties, and and you know, no alcohol on Sundays, kind of stuff. Right, right. Uh, Spurgeon wasn't for that, mm-hmm. and he wrote about it. He talked about how you know there's a difference between drunkenness and the consumption of alcohol. Mm-hmm. The argument of new wine and scripture is not really founded. Right, it's not uh, grape juice. And and so for him to have a bourbon and a cigar in his study while he's working on a sermon mm-hmm. was just how he did it. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and made no apologies about it. The Southern Baptists have five or six major seminaries. Yeah. One it, of them is in the Kansas City area, mm-hmm. uh, Midwestern. Mm-hmm. An incredible seminary mm-hmm. Their Bible college under the seminary is called Spurgeon College. Yeah, they paid to have Spurgeon's study cataloged, broken down, shipped, and reconstructed on their campus. It's crazy. His study f- built rebuilt freestanding in this huge museum with his desk, his pulpit, and the cigar (sighs) that was on his desk inside of a glass case. In order to get into that school, you have to sign a waiver saying, you will drink no alcohol and you will not smoke (laughs) because these things are not of God. (laughs)
0: You know what I think Tim? I think a lot of those rules are going to go the way of the no beards allowed in the seminary. <laughs> I think I think 20 years from now, uh they won't.
1: It's just one of those it's one of those interesting things where people you've named your school after the man
0: <laughs> and he's known for his cigar smoking. Like it's a yet, feature of who he is.
1: Yet he would not be allowed to have been a student, let alone a teacher. <laughs> oh,
0: they would have kicked him out so fast. I know. <laughs> and he wouldn't have cared because he was too busy already pastoring churches. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just ironic. It is. It how is. we how we like to say, I have a hard stance. I didn't realize my hero doesn't share that stance. Yeah. I'm going to take the part that I already knew to be true. And I'm just going to claim that and pretend like that's the thing. We're going to let the rest of it <laughs> just, we'll sweep it under the rug, let it fall off the table and we're not going to worry about it. And we're going to pretend like it's not there. And I'd prefer to just stop bringing it up.
0: Sounds kind of like what we do with Jesus sometimes. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Sorry. It's true.
1: Yeah. Anyway, Spurgeon, you Great. have a favorite, favorite Spurgeon moment,
0: favorite Spurgeon moment. Um,
1: I got some. I got some good quotes for him here. While you're okay. while you're thinking about it, uh, let's see here. Nobody ever outgrows the scriptures. Mm. The book widens and deepens with our years. Mm. We are not responsible to God for the souls that are saved, but we are responsible for the gospel that we preached and the way that we preached it.
0: Mm. That's great. That's yeah. I love that.
1: My my favorite. Passage from Spurgeon, the all-time favorite. If you've if you've got the three volume, it, it's a six-volume set that has been condensed to a three-volume set by Hendrix Publishers, I think, green with gold binding. Yep. The very first sermon in there is called "The Bible," and the opening to that sermon is just absolutely cr- incredible. He, you can find it online as well. He talks about looking at the, sc- at the stars, okay. and in that moment just being struck by the awesomeness and the vastness of God, mm. and, and he says, you, have, you had every right to be aloof and away, and I would look at these stars, and I would say, you are the eyes of God, but you look not on me. Hmm. I am alone, alone, alone but not our God. Mm. Our God is of another sort. Mm. And then he goes on to talk about the value of scripture as God revealing himself to man to be known. Mm. And it is just, it's written beautifully. And I revisit it probably once a quarter and just go back and reread that sermon. I mm. love it so much.
0: No, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, for me, <clears throat> I think my favorite story, you kind of alluded to it. But I'm going to just kind of read it out here. This is this is in 1857 when he was testing, not testing the mic because there was no mic, right? But testing the positioning of the pulpit in the Crystal Palace and uh, trying to figure out where they should set things up because there was 23,000-plus people who came to hear him preach, and he did it without amplification. And what he cried out in his loud voice, in which convicted that janitor is just simply behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, and you know to be used in in that way um to simply be used literally as a as a mouthpiece for the word of god mm-hmm. um in such a simple way um just amazing and and i pray I pray that the Lord would use me in in a similar way M- maybe not being the pastor of a church of ten thousand people I couldn't manage that anyways. But um, but that he would use me, my ministry, whatever brokenness that I'm in, that he would work through that and uh, that I could leave a fraction of the legacy that, that he did. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Amen to that. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada is produced by Alex Walker.
0: See you next time.